0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, The Progress of the Gospel, with a message entitled The Mystery of Israel's Salvation. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 11, verses 24 to 32, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I once heard a very funny story. It comes from the 1800s when doctors were experimenting with ether, which was then being used as an anesthetic in surgery. Because so little was yet known about how to administer it and how it worked, there were dangers and so forth. A certain doctor decided to administer some to himself. And as he was going down into unconsciousness, a thought occurred to him. He believed that he had just received the key to the mysteries of the universe. But when he woke up, he couldn't remember. It was frustrating. It was maddening. So much had been revealed, and yet it was beyond his ability to recount. And so he thought, maybe if I get another dose of ether, I'd revisit the same mystery. But this time he had a stenographer present so that if possible, he'd be able, before he lapsed into unconsciousness, to verbally repeat to her what he saw. She would hear him, and then she would record what he was saying, and all the mysteries of the universe would come to light. And that's what he did. And as before, just before he lapsed into unconsciousness, the same brilliant insight about the mysteries of the universe reappeared. He mumbled what he saw to his stenographer and then lapsed into unconsciousness with the secure knowledge that what he had come to see would change all of human knowledge. And when he woke up again, he was so excited. Well, he couldn't remember his insight just like before, but he was hopeful. He called his stenographer and asked her to read what it is that he had said, and this is what she read. The entire universe is permeated with a strong odor of turpentine. (laughs) Well, that insight seemed quite profound when he was under the influence of ether, but as we can see, not all mysteries are as profound as we might think, but some are. But this idea that a mystery is an insight into that which would never have been known is exactly how the Bible uses the word. See, according to the Bible, God sometimes decides to reveal mysteries to us. According to Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and none of his wise men could tell him what his dream was or what it meant. Daniel then tells the king, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. What human beings can't discover using their own wisdom, God decides, at least sometimes he does, to tell us things we wouldn't know any other way. Now, according to Ephesians 1 verse 9, it says, God has made known to us, that is to believers, the mystery of his will according to his purposes which he set forth in time. Now, in Ephesians, that has everything in the world to do with God's salvation and his choosing of a people for himself. The point is, we would never have known what God was up to unless he told us. And that's what a mystery is. It's something human beings can never discover on their own. Either God tells us or we carry on in ignorance. See, the entire gospel is in that sense a mystery. That Christ would have to die on the cross for our sins, well, that's a mystery. We never knew this until God revealed it or listen to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. It says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. So in short, Before time began, God had purposed to create a unique race of people made up of Jews and Gentiles melted into one new people group called the people of God. Now, that's a mystery. We would have never known this until God chose to reveal it. Who would have guessed? Now, in Romans 11, a new mystery is presented. This is the mystery of how the gospel progresses. In order to win the Gentiles, in in order to win a vast group of people made up of the most disparate of all peoples from, from Asia to the Americas, people representing cultures and languages vastly different from one another, and make them into one body. See, God would do so by hardening Israel. Romans 11.11 says, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So, in other words, the mystery is that this is the means that God would use to bring the good news into the world. I mean, who exactly would have figured that out on their own? It would have been impossible. That was a mystery. Just like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, no one understood what the Jewish rejection of Jesus was all about until God showed it to us or revealed it to us that this was the plan from the beginning. God foresaw Kenyans and Egyptians and Mongolians and Indians and the Chinese, Bolivians, and more, kneeling before the throne, calling Jesus Lord and claiming a heritage in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who could have foreseen such a thing? That is a mystery. But there's still one more mystery that God wants to reveal, and let's read that one in Romans 11:24 to 26. It says, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So the final mystery of Romans 11 is the mystery that all Israel will be saved. God, who hardened Israel, plans in the future to bring Israel back. But why? What grand purpose does the altogether wise God have in mind? Well, if you listen carefully, you'll hear him revealing just that. Now, you may remember in our study of Romans 11, one of the the great dangers for many Gentiles that had now converted to Christ was one of arrogance. See, they had come to realize that God had turned from Israel and gone to the Gentiles. So the image Paul uses is an image of an olive tree. And as Israel rejected her Messiah, they are like branches of a tree that are broken off and and they lie lifeless at the bottom of the tree while wild olive branches are grafted in, in their place, and they're alive and they're bearing fruit. And so Paul has to add the phrase, lest you be wise in your own sight. You know, another translation says, in order that you not be wise in yourselves. Still, another translation says, so that you may not be conceited. So, Paul insists that Gentile Christians must never view themselves as superior to unbelieving Israel. Uh, Yes, Israel was rejected so that the Gentiles might be accepted. Now, that's true, but God hates arrogance. James 4, verse 6 says, God is opposed to the proud. And so it turns out God has two reasons for revealing to us the mystery of the future of Israel. The first is to ensure that we Gentile followers of Jesus will always have an attitude of humility towards Israel. And because of that, he tells us the mystery. And the second reason, found later in the passage, is so that we remember that when God makes a promise, nothing can break it, not even hardness of heart. We're going to come back to that second reason when we end the address. Okay, let's take a step back. Verse 25 says, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, so let's stop there. Now, that's not new. All of Romans 9 to 11 has been teaching just that. We should remember that it's wrong to say Israel has rejected the gospel because, as a matter of fact, A great many Jewish people have not rejected the gospel. This is a partial hardening. Okay, let's go on. The mystery is this. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, let's stop there again. This is now the second time that Paul uses the word fullness in this chapter. Back in verse 12, we read, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, we noted then that the English Standard Version translates the word fullness as full inclusion. Well, let's use that translation. God has in his own mind the full inclusion or the exact number of the Gentiles among his people. Now, this might have everything in the world to do with what Jesus said when he said the gospel of the kingdom would be preached to all the nations and then the end would come. But however we understand it, we know that there is coming a time when the last of the Gentiles is brought into the root of the tree, when the last wild branch is grafted into the vine, when the very last convert from among the Gentiles bows the knee and surrenders to Jesus Christ as Lord. And when that occurs, something altogether unexpected is going to happen, something we would never have guessed on our own if God had not told us about it. See, what's going to happen next is that all Israel will be saved. I mean, oh my, what in the world can that mean? Now, I hope I've tweaked your interest. There is so much more of this mystery that is going to fascinate us.
0: The newest issue of Truth and Life magazine is available to you this month. Great articles that will encourage, challenge, and draw you deeper into God's Word, featuring Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway of Laugh Again, in-doubt young adult leader Isaac Dagno, and a special interest article of testimony from Colonel Peter Rood regarding his experience and gratitude despite his time in a concentration camp, and much more. This month, we're focused on the importance of being grateful and extending our gratitude to others. You can receive your copy of Truth and Life magazine by calling 1 800 663 2425 or visiting us online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld.
1: Romans 11:26 says all Israel will be saved, but what does that mean? Now, it must be admitted here that this verse has generated a great deal of controversy among Bible readers. There are those who argue that all Israel can't possibly refer to the Jewish people. They'll go to Galatians chapter 6 verse 16 where Paul calls the church now made up of Jews and Gentiles, he calls them the Israel of God. They'll also point out that in this very section, in Romans 9, verse 6, Paul says that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So we can see that Paul uses the word Israel in two different ways. Sometimes he uses it to refer to Israel as the natural descendants of Abraham or the Jewish people, and sometimes he uses it to refer to the church made up of Jews and Gentiles, this new humanity that God has created. And so... At least so some say, it seems like the phrase, all Israel will be saved, must mean the full number of believers will be saved. But, but I disagree. See, I'm convinced that Paul has the natural descendants of Abraham, that is, the Jews, in mind. I mean, for one, the entire theme of Romans 11 is to understand the relationship between the Gentile church and unbelieving Israel. So in Romans 11, the only way Paul ever uses the word Israel is to refer to the Jews. In chapter 11, verse 1, Paul calls himself an Israelite, and he means his race, for he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And in verse 14, he says, the salvation of the Gentiles is to make Israel jealous. I mean, no, no. The entire passage before us seems to make it very clear that in this passage, the use of the word Israel always refers to the Jewish people. Secondly, and this really is the point, Romans 11 is asking, what is to become of the broken off branches? Look back at verse 24. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? You see, God is promising to restore unbelieving Israel back into her spiritual heritage and join them with believing Gentiles. All Israel, all the Jewish people will be saved. But what can that mean? I mean, does he mean that all Jewish people who have ever lived are assured salvation? Well, no, of course not. Can't mean that. I mean, we don't have time to review it here, but the entire book of Romans makes it clear that that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All will be judged for their sin and that Christ alone is the only hope for salvation. I mean, being a Jew by genetic heritage does not grant you eternal life. But then if all Jews are not saved, Paul must mean then that in some time in the future, all Israel will be saved. Yeah, that's what he's been saying. When the last of the Gentiles is brought in, then all Israel, that is, the Jewish people at that future time will turn to Christ. But does that mean that in the future, every single Jewish person without exception will turn to Christ? Well, I think not, not necessarily. I mean, the great Bible scholar F.F. Bruce thought that the phrase all Israel was a recurring expression in Jewish literature that was never intended to mean every single Jew without exception. So let's test that theory. The phrase all Israel is used over 700 times in our Bible. Now, at times, it must mean exactly what it appears to mean. So, for instance, in Joshua 3, verse 17, it says, Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Now, clearly, that passage describes Israel entering into the promised land, and we are told that the entire nation, that is, everyone, crossed the Jordan. So there, all Israel means everyone. But in other places, all Israel means a great portion of Israel. I mean, consider Second Chronicles 10, verse 1, where we read, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now, I highly doubt that not one baby, not one child or old man or someone lying on their deathbed had not come to the, the king's coronation. I think this passage, the phrase all Israel must mean that enough people were present so that the entire nation is properly represented, and it is in this sense That I think that Paul is using it here. In contrast to the present time, when only a small number of Israel is turned to Christ, Paul says in the future, the number of Jews turning to Christ will be so large that their numbers will represent the whole of the nation. A revival, if you will, of turning to Jesus will sweep the entire Jewish people that will be so profound that the only appropriate term to be used is that all Israel is turning to Jesus. Okay, but when does that happen? I mean, do we expect it now? Well, no. Remember, this will occur when the last Gentile has been called in. Now, when is that? Well, the last Gentile convert will come home at the very moment that Christ returns. And that, I think, leaves us with the only conclusion to this mystery that Paul must have in mind here, a turning to Christ by Israel during the time that we now call the millennium. So let's read Romans 11:26 to 27. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come to Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what Paul does here is, is quote, two different Old Testament promises regarding Israel. The first comes from Isaiah 59, verse 20. You know, that passage is found in a larger section in Isaiah, in which the prophet looks at the nation as a whole, and he sees her ungodliness, but he says, well, that's not the last chapter to be written about the Jewish people. He promises that a Redeemer will come to Zion or or to Jerusalem. That the Lord himself will rise over Israel, a day when violence will be banished from Israel forever, a day when God makes all things new. Now, clearly, Isaiah is looking forward to the consummation of all things. At that time, ungodliness will be banished from Jacob. Now, the second quote comes from Jeremiah 31, verse 33, when God makes a new covenant with the house of Israel, and in that day, all Israel will know the Lord from the least to the greatest. So Romans 11 is simply a reiterating of the hope of the Old Testament prophets. Israel may be a rebellious house now. They may be reduced to a remnant, but God will change all of that in the last days. So let's read Romans eleven twenty-eight to 31. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you at one time were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy." Now, if you've been following this series through, this this paragraph should be completely clear to you. But some things really do need our attention. Notice the two roles that Israel plays. One is the role of the enemy of God, disobedient to God, and out of their disobedience, giving rise to the Gentile mission. But on the other hand, Israel also plays another role. It's the role they play in election. Remember, in the biblical doctrine of election, God enters a voting booth and elects his own. And in the history of salvation, God elected Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants. Listen to Genesis 17, verse 7. It says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And to that, Paul adds, the gifts and the calling are irrevocable. God never promises something and then cancels out his promise. I mean, the word gifts doesn't refer to spiritual gifts, but grace gifts, the gifts of salvation, that God should be our God. So the calling refers to God's election of Israel. Once God calls them, he never revokes that call. And that, by the way, is why anyone who hopes in Christ today takes courage. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God never breaks his word. God never forgets his promises. God never speaks one way and then another. God never acts like an unethical politician and makes promises only when it's convenient. When God promises, it's like yesterday's newspaper. Whether the past or the future, God's promises set the matter in concrete. Now to verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. Now that passage is not difficult to understand. It simply says that God has assigned all of Israel to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them in the future. And that's the mystery of God's design and the progress of the gospel. For all who wonder what God is up to, God has just told us. All we're left with is to say, Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God.
0: John, uh, thanks so much for today's message. Uh, the promises of God are so vital. You know, you mentioned something earlier. You said God never promises something and then cancels out his promise. There's security in there, isn't there?
1: Yeah, so much is you know of the uh, nature of God is related to that very thing. I mean, God is unchangeable. And the fact that he's unchangeable is such a wonderful certainty to all of us. Uh, It would be a horrible thing that if God would make a promise and then decide to renege on it because of some unforeseen circumstance in the future. But, of course, God foresees all things. God is completely unchangeable, and God is also trustworthy. And, uh, you know, all of these things combined together really give us this assurance uh, that, uh, as God himself says, that God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. So I am so thankful for that, and I hope our listeners are as well. And that's why we have such confidence when we think about, you know, will I be accepted before God Is the cross enough, all of that kind of things. Well, the question always is, did God promise it? And if he did, it's good, and we can take it to the bank. Amen. Back to the Bible Canada,
0: leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Partnership in ministry is a value we sincerely believe in at Back to the Bible Canada. Like-minded ministries working together for Kingdom purposes. So I'm so pleased to announce that Dr. John Newfeld will be a keynote speaker at Promise Keeper Canada's upcoming conferences across the country, including Toronto, Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Edmonton, as well as in Abbotsford, British Columbia for the Promise Keepers Legacy event this coming October 22nd at Gateway Community Church. Men, for all the information you need or to register for any of the Promise Keeper events, visit promisekeepers.ca or to discover what's up and coming for Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. And please remember to pray for and support Bible teaching ministries across the country.